Um, my learning objectives, I'll just tell you, are to describe the natural history and current management of viral hepatitis. So we're focusing today on, do you want me to use that one, not this one? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Wow. I feel like I'm part of a neurological research experiment here. Okay. It sounds a little on the loud side. Am I supposed to be able to adjust that? Okay. Um, there we go. Beautiful. Thank you. So I guess we're supposed to wait three minutes. Is that right? My watch is early. We'll wait three minutes. So hepatitis is a huge topic, and the word hepatitis just means inflamed liver. So, of course, there is a differential diagnosis for what can inflame the liver, but I'm going to talk today almost exclusively about viral causes of hepatitis, and I'm not going to try and give you the whole textbook. So, um, you know, there's a bunch of causes that aren't, aren't, inf aren't viral and aren't even infectious, toxins and drugs and metabolic diseases and alcohol and fatty liver and, and all those are all important and prominent topics, but not ones I'm going to talk about today except just in the most glancing sort of way. So um, the focus today is really on viral hepatitis. And even that, there is so much to say and so much that we could talk about that uh, we, could have, we could spend all weekend here talking about viral hepatitis. So I'm really going to try and hit the high points and give you an overview. And if there's something you want to dig into, jot a note or ask and we'll, we'll go into it because we could go off in many directions depending on what your interest is as an audience. So the uh, learning objectives today are to describe the natural history and current management of viral hepatitis to discuss hepatitis diagnostic algorithms for resource-limited settings, and to discuss barriers to antiviral treatment and emerging solutions. And I have no relevant disclosures. And here's a case that might uh, illustrate some of the relevance or even the urgency of this topic. So this, this is a patient I cared for earlier this year in Cameroon. 28-year-old Cameroonian farmer presents with abdominal pain, anorexia, and weight loss. Physical exam shows temporal wasting and jaundice. There's a firm, irregular, tender mass in the right upper quadrant of the abdomen. Abdominal ultrasound shows a, shows a large mass, replacing most of the right lobe of liver and extending beyond the liver capsule. Ascites is present. Serum alpha fetoprotein is markedly elevated and uh, um, a uh, number in this range really can only be hepatocellular carcinoma in an adult male. And uh, serum hepatitis B surface antigen is positive. So this is a patient. Uh, patients present like this every week to the hospital in Cameroon I was at uh, with uh, end-stage hepatocellular carcinoma. And this patient is really only a candidate for palliative care in any medical center on the globe. And uh, so... Uh, this is a very common story in much of sub-Saharan Africa and much of Asia. And so uh, viral hepatitis um, um, is an important issue. Uh, I'm going to spend most of my time today talking about hepatitis B 
and hepatitis C, but I'm going to touch briefly on some of the rest of the alphabet of hepatitis. So uh, this is a map that shows the uh, global prevalence of hepatitis A, where it's endemic and where it's not. And you can see, essentially, it's highly endemic everywhere, but uh, United States, Canada, Western Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. So most of the world, hepatitis A is highly endemic. And and its transmission, as many of you already know, is fecal-oral uh, through, uh, through the mouth, uh, with, uh, often uh, through poor sanitation, often through the vehicles of food or water. The severity of illness is linked to the age of exposure. And this is typically uh, not a cause of clinically apparent disease in Africa and much of Asia. And the reason is pretty much everyone gets exposed when they're small. And they don't have any clinically recognizable disease from it. It's, uh, it causes an extremely mild, if any, disease. However, adults who get hepatitis A get sick. And uh, case fatality rate in adults is about 1% um, uh, from fulminant hepatitis. And, and so there's no specific antiviral therapy for hepatitis A. And the one thing you should know, I want to tell you today, is that travelers should be vaccinated. If you're going to an endemic area, you need to be vaccinated for hepatitis A before you go because you don't want to catch it while you're there. This is the map showing the endemicity for hepatitis E. We're going to jump from hepatitis A to hepatitis E. And um, uh, you can see that it's a little more mixed here in this picture. The, the dark brown areas is highly endemic. So if you look in your favorite areas of Asia or Africa, you may or may not see high endemicity. Orange is endemic, and it's interesting that where we live is considered an endemic country um, and uh, other developed countries in, in, uh, in Western Europe. Hepatitis E tends to occur in outbreaks. Its transmission is also fecal-oral through food or waterborne. Again, case fatality rate about 1%. And pregnant women are a special risk for fulminant forms of hepatitis E, higher mortality in pregnant women. Like hepatitis A, this is not a chronic disease, and uh, you get better from it, or occasionally patients would die from it. Uh, it does become a chronic disease in organ transplant recipients. Again, there's no specific antiviral therapy. There is a vaccine now available in China for hepatitis E, but I don't personally have access to it. Sam is nodding. Maybe he could get a hold of it for us. Um, so, so I've talked about two, the two leading viral causes of acute hepatitis, hepatitis A, hepatitis E. So I want to say a moment, just a, one slide about how do you assess and think about acute hepatitis in someone who comes to your clinic setting in the developing world. Well, in the developing world, you've got to first ask, is there actually evidence that this person has chronic liver disease? And this is just a flare of something, a flare of their chronic hepatitis B or their chronic hepatitis C or they have B and now they've obtained Delta, which we'll get to. And then is there a history of toxin exposure, such as acetaminophen or alcohol? Could it be autoimmune hepatitis, which is seen in young women, often with other autoimmune disease and a characteristic serologic pattern, ANA positive and other autoantibodies? Could it be Wilson's disease, a rare disease but highly treatable and uh, 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 often can be diagnosed in the mission hospital setting. If you have a slit lamp or an ophthalmologist available, you can look for Kaiser Fleischer rings, copper deposits in the, in the cornea. You can, if the patient has a hemolytic anemia and, a, and an alkaline phosphatase that's higher than their bilirubin, 
You've got to think that they're having fulminant Wilson's disease. This is highly treatable. And then acute hepatitis, you're going to do some serologies for viral infections, and you'd like to do an ultrasound of the liver to be sure it's not biliary disease. Management of acute hepatitis, you, the first question I would ask myself is, is this fulminant acute hepatitis? And the definition of fulminant acute hepatitis is an acute hepatitis accompanied by hepatic encephalopathy. So this is completely a bedside diagnosis, no technology required. Um, uh, and if it is a fulminant acute hepatitis uh, in someone with a previously normal liver, there's a whole subset of, of issues that we're not going to go into much today. Coagulopathy, these patients are especially prone to hypoglycemia and need to be monitored for that or on glucose drips. Uh, one common mode of death of patients with fulminant acute hepatitis is elevated intracranial pressure with herniation of the brainstem. And so the ability to monitor or to relieve elevated intracranial pressure becomes an issue. If there's a, uh, in anyone with acute hepatitis, if it could be a acetaminophen overdose, we give charcoal via NG tube to bind acetaminophen in the gut and give it the antidote intravenously, acetylcysteine, and there's nomograms and procedures for thinking about that available on the web. We monitor liver function, co uh, coagulation parameters, which are a sign of synthetic function, and we, check, we look for encephalopathy to develop, and then we just give supportive care to the patient. So this is hepatitis B, the map of the globe, and uh, uh, this shows the prevalence now of chronic hepatitis B. So people who are hepatitis B surface antigen positive in their circulation. That's one test we're going to want to have in our diagnostic armamentarium for hepatitis. And if you're in the dark color here, you have a prevalence in the population of over 8% are chronic carriers of hepatitis B. That's a big number, 8% of a population. And you'll see that all of sub-Saharan Africa is dark green. And uh, certain areas in Asia, uh, China, Mongolia, and some of the Southeast Asian countries, they're dark green. And these are places where uh, uh, chronic hepatitis B is a major public health problem. Hepatitis B is transmitted by blood and body fluids uh, through injections, transfusions, sexual contact, Certainly through household contact is, is well reported. Child-to-child -child spread is probably an, an important form of transmission in West Africa anyhow. And the details of how that, why that is the case is not entirely clear there yet. Vertical transmission of hepatitis B is a big issue in Asia. And vertical transmission means transmission from the mother to the child at the time of birth, uh, in the process of birth. Um, Hepatitis B is a major cause of cirrhosis and liver cancer worldwide, a leading cause of liver-related death worldwide. Now, this slide shows the outcome of hepatitis B virus infection by the age of infection. So I want you to start by looking at the right-hand side of the slide here. This goes to the y-axis from 100% down to 0%. And this is for the yellow line here. What percent of people get symptoms when they get infected? And on the x-axis here is age. So if you're in your first year of life and you get exposed to hepatitis B, either at birth or in early childhood, you have almost no chance of having a symptomatic infection. Nobody even knows you got hepatitis B. You're never sick from it. Uh, on the other hand, if you're an adult and you get hepatitis B, about a 40% chance you're going to get sick and have clinically recognizable hepatitis. 
So in parts of the world where it's endemic and spread in, at birth or early childhood, nobody really gets sick from hepatitis B acutely. Now, the, uh, the, the y-axis on the left side here is the percent that turn into a chronic infection. So, by, again, by age, the same x-axis. And that's the red line here. So if you get exposed early in life, highly likely you're going to develop chronic hepatitis B. If you get exposed as an adult, only about 10% will develop chronic hepatitis B. The rest will largely clear the infection. A small percent will die from fulminant hepatitis. So in the developing world, exposure early in life, no one gets sick then, but high likelihood of chronic infection. Completely different than if you get exposed as an adult in, uh, in North America. Chronic hepatitis B is defined as having hepatitis B surface antigen in the bloodstream for six or more months. And the complications, as I've already alluded to, cirrhosis, decompensated cirrhosis, I mean the liver is losing it. And uh, you start to have ascites or encephalopathy or GI bleeding. And then, as I've already uh, presented in the case, hepatocellular carcinoma. This is the worldwide map of the prevalence of, or incidence, I should say, of hepatocellular carcinoma. And you'll notice that the areas with a lot of hepatitis B are the areas with the worst prevalence here. And the scale on this graph is quite striking. The low-risk areas in, in green and tan is less than half a case per 100,000 people per year. The high-risk areas in red, it's over... 90 cases per 100,000 people per year. That's a huge difference in prevalence, and, I mean, in incidence, and it's largely related to hepatitis B. And in fact, this, the uh, patient's hepatitis B uh, DNA level in the blood predicts their risk of hepatocellular carcinoma. This is a study from, from Asia where they looked at people with hepatitis B, and those with the low levels of circulating hepatitis B DNA, less than a percent got hepatocellular carcinoma after 13 years of follow-up, while those with the highest level, 13.5% uh, got cancer during that time, year, those years of follow-up. Now, this slide I want to spend a little bit of time on, especially for those of you who are caregivers because this is key. To, if there's one thing you want to learn from me today about hepatitis B, it's the natural history of chronic hepatitis B virus. So this graph is looking at what happens to someone who's got chronic hepatitis B, meaning they have a hepatitis B surface antigen positive in their bloodstream. What's the course of that illness? Well, there's four discrete phases that we know about. And this shows them happening uniformly in time, and sometimes it goes that way, but not everyone goes through every phase. So this is just sort of an overall schematic. Now, the first, th the first phase is called the immune tolerance phase, and this is the phase that a lot of young people are in in Africa and Asia who got hepatitis B when they were born, but nobody ever knew. And um, some of the electronics feel like they're falling off of me. Okay. So um, these people have what's called hepatitis B E antigen circulating in their blood. And this is actually the hepatitis B virus DNA polymerase, and it's that, that molecule circulating in their blood, and it's a marker of infectivity. And so they've got this, they're E antigen positive. They don't have the antibody to E, they've just got the antigen in their blood. They've got a very high level of hepatitis B virus DNA in their circulation. But their ALT or AST 
the, the blood tests we use to evaluate liver inflammation, they're normal. So there's no hepatitis, if you will. And in fact, if you did a liver biopsy on that young person, it would look normal. There's no inflammation, no scarring. Liver looks fine. But the hepatitis B virus is in those hepatocytes, and it's replicating, and it's shedding into the bloodstream. And this person is not at all sick from their hepatitis. You'll notice here, let's think about the lab question that was asked, what do we need to be able to test? You'll notice you need to be able to test a hepatitis B surface antigen to even get on this graph. Measuring E antigen is going to turn out to be very helpful. And measuring an AST or ALT is very helpful. Hepatitis B virus DNA is a hard assay, and it's not one that is critical, as I'm going to get to. But it's harder to manage hepatitis B without it. Okay, so teenage years, childhood teenage years, patients are in the immune tolerance phase. Then comes immune clearance phase. And this is a phase often, at least in Asia, where patients start to go into this in their 20s, late teens or 20s. And this is a phase where the immune system, if you would like, wakes up or recognizes the hepatitis B virus and starts to respond. And there's an immune response that starts to get going. And that's what causes the hepatitis. And so now the ALT starts to go up, or the AST, these markers of liver inflammation. They're high. And sometimes they're seesawing, as it shows in the dotted lines here. So all of a sudden there's a hepatitis going on in the liver, and the DNA levels drop somewhat because the immune system wins partially, but not completely. It's a battle, and there's a seesaw between the virus and the immune system. E antigen is still positive. And it's in this phase, the immune clearance phase, that the liver becomes inflamed and then fibrotic and progressively scarred and progressing on to cirrhosis. This is this phase. And some people go through this phase in a matter of months, and others may spend decades in this phase. And the, the ones who spend a long time in this phase are the ones who are going to come with sort of decompensated cirrhosis to the hospital, vomiting blood from variceal bleeding or with ascites or with encephalopathy uh, or something. Now, the next phase is what's called the inactive carrier phase. And here, in this phase, the immune system has won. The immune system has got a handle on the infection and it's bottled it up. The patient is still hepatitis B surface antigen positive in their blood. They're still on this figure. But they no longer have the E antigen circulating. They now have antibody to the hepatitis B E antigen, or what we call anti-hepatitis B E. So they've got antibody to that. They're circulating a hepatitis B virus DNA level is very low or, or often undetectable. So the infection is sort of on hold, and the immune system has won uh, in this phase. And the process of inflammation and scarring the liver comes to a halt at that phase. And, and uh, the patient may just remain in this phase then for the rest of their life. Um, they may go backward into the immune clearance phase if they become immunosuppressed, interestingly, or they may go forward into what's called the reactivation phase. And this is a phase where a mutant hepatitis B virus emerges that uh, doesn't make E antigen and that escapes the immune control. And uh, this is so-called hepatitis B E antigen negative chronic hepatitis. So this person, their AST and their ALT goes up again. The liver's inflamed and getting scarred again. Uh, but they don't have hepatitis B E antigen. And so that's what distinguishes this phase from this phase over here. 
Any questions about this figure that I've spent quite a while on with? Am I going too fast? Too slow? Well, an antigen is a circulating, in this case, protein that's in the blood. And it's a foreign protein, actually. It's not made by your own body. It's made by the hepatitis B virus. So it's a molecule floating in the blood. And um, we call it E. It was given a name. It's actually the hepatitis B virus DNA polymerase is the name of the protein. Um, And antigen means that's what's floating in your blood. If you have an antibody to it, then it's hepatitis B. B-E antibody or anti-hepatitis B-E? Am I getting at your question? Thank you for asking it. Yes. Is the E antigen the characteristic antigen of the envelope of the virus? No, that's the surface antigen. So the question is, what's the envelope or the outer covering of the virus would be the B surface antigen? And all the way along on this graph, from the left to the right, the person is hepatitis B surface antigen positive in their blood. So I'm showing you the the natural history of chronic infection. It's interesting to note, since you asked about lab tests, nowhere on here does core antibody appear. The important part of thinking about acute hepatitis B, but in the developing world, you don't need a hepatitis B core antibody test. Typically. typically. There was a hand over here. Yeah. Great question. So people who make it to the inactive carrier phase, about 20% actually will go into the reactivation phase. Not in considerable number. Yeah. Great question. So what about vaccine? So um, there isn't great penetration, at least in Africa. I don't know the numbers on Asia, but I would bet it varies hugely by country and socioeconomic level. But but, um, um, someone who's vaccinated will have antibody, but they won't have any circulating antigen. So, so they wouldn't appear on this figure because they would would be hepatitis B surface antigen negative in their blood. They'd have antibody, but they would not have antigen. Correct. Right. So if you also have core antibody, then you've had prior infection. But not terribly relevant in the developing world setting, but in the U.S., uh, for instance, that would be an important distinguisher. They have surface antibody, then they've, then they've been exposed to the antigen at some time. So they've even either been vaccinated or they've had acute hepatitis B and cleared it, or chronic hepatitis B and cleared it, which happens very uncommonly. Less than 10% of people who are B surface antigen positive will ever spontaneously lose that and convert to B surface antibody. Exactly, exactly. Where are they in these four phases? It's going to turn out the treatment depends heavily on which phase you're in. Probably should have said that 10 minutes ago. Yeah. 
Well, there's two complica- main complications. One is scarring and fibrosis, and the answer to your question there is yes. Plus, if they're in reactivation, that process kicks up again. The other complication is cancer, and there's a complex relationship between to what extent is that due to inflammation and fibrosis just as just the virus being present. And it's actually some of both of those things feeding into the cancer story. Good question. Yeah. Yes. So the question was on the reactivation, age, reactivation phase, what's the agent, the infectious agent? It's hepatitis B, but it's a mutant hepatitis B virus that no longer makes E antigen uh, and that, is, um, that escapes sort of the immune control that is present in the inactive carrier phase. So when you do your serologies, you see the ALT is high, the hepatitis B surface antigen is positive, but they're E antigen negative. So you think, wait a minute, they should be in the inactive carrier phase, but they have a hepatitis going on. And if you can measure hepatitis B virus DNA and it's high, you say, well, it's their hepatitis B. If you can't measure that, then you, it's sort of a process of excluding everything else. Is that mutant virus thing, is that infectious to others or not? Yes, it is infectious. Yeah. All right, I'm going to go on here. But these are excellent questions, and thank you for engaging. Now, um, okay, how do I, I've seem to have lost my ability to advance. Is something. There we go, thank you. So um, what if you can't measure hepatitis B virus DNA in the setting you're in, in the developing world? Well, then you have to manage the patient based on the surface antigen, the AST or ALT, which are markers of liver inflammation, and the hepatitis B E antigen or antibody status. And it's very helpful to have a lab that can measure those things. And these are fairly simple ELISA assays for those of you who are in the lab sort of world, and I'm not really in it myself. Most clinical labs can do this with kits. And, and the B surface antigen is actually just measured with a, a strip. It's a quite a simple test. So, so most of these things can be done in, in even a basic lab. If you don't have the B virus DNA, as I just said, though, you've got to consider that active hepatitis might be due to factors other than hepatitis B virus and assess the patient for these other things. Um, It's interesting. It advances on my screen, but not up there. I'm not sure what's happening. Thank you. This is Rachel, who's our helper here. I wish you'd give her a, a round of applause, I think. All right, here we go. Those are my three daughters, by the way. It's rare to get them all together, so. All right, so um, now. Everything's gotten small here. Let's see. All right. Yes, thanks so much, Rachel. Approach to the patient with chronic hepatitis B when they're seen in the medical clinic uh, in the developing world setting. Well, you want to think about what phase of the infection are they in. And so you'd want to know their ALT or AST, 
their hepatitis E antigen level or antibody level, which are they? In the, um, you'd want to know that they're B surface antigen positive. And if you had access to hepatitis B virus DNA, you'd like to measure it, but all usually in most mission settings, you can't. You'd like to evaluate them for cirrhosis. You'd like to decide whether antiviral treatment is indicated. You'd like to screen their household contacts and to then to monitor them over time and to screen them for cancer. Now, here's a recommendations for infected persons regarding prevention of transmission of hepatitis B virus to others. And this is what we tell people in a clinic if we're seeing them and counseling them about their hepatitis B, their chronic hepatitis B. Persons who are B surface antigen positive should have their sexual contacts vaccinated. Their spouse should come in and get tested, and if they're not positive, they need to get vaccinated. Uh, they should use barrier protection during sexual intercourse if their partner is not vaccinated or, or naturally immune. They should not share toothbrushes or razors. Why? Because you can get blood on those things that you can then transmit to others. They should cover open cuts and scratches. They should clean blood spills with detergent or bleach. They should not donate blood, organ, or sperm. Children and adults who are B-service antigen positive can participate in all activities, including contact sports, so we don't tell kids that they can't play on the field at school. They should not be excluded from daycare or school participation and should not be isolated from other children. They can share food, utensils, and they can kiss others. Now, we're not talking about romantic kisses here, but sort of the contact that a family member would have with another family member. So how do you tell if cirrhosis is present in someone you're seeing with chronic hepatitis B? Well, uh, there's several ways. Uh, one of the most useful ways in a mission hospital setting, especially, is the AST to platelet ratio index called the APRI. And I've put the formula there. Um, do you have access to my slides? I think you have access on the website. Do you know, Rachel? They do. Okay. I need to give you these updated slides. But anyhow, yeah, so, so this is a great thing because if you have an AST and a platelet count, you can calculate this ratio and, and say whether you think there's cirrhosis. If there's a firm and nodular liver on both exam and on ultrasound, you could say there's cirrhosis. And that's a nodular liver shown here in cirrhosis with some ascites there. Unfortunately, this criteria is very insensitive. It's going to miss most cirrhosis. Most cirrhosis looks like a normal ultrasound. If the, if the cirrhosis is so severe it's decompensated and they have variceal bleeding or huge ascites, well, that would be a, uh, a helpful in diagnosing cirrhosis. And then there's this technology called FibroScan, and this is essentially a fancy ultrasound unit that gives you out a reading on liver stiffness. It uses the ultrasound wave and its, and its reflection back to measure liver stiffness. Very good test, non-invasive test for uh, diagnosing uh, cirrhosis. Unfortunately, the unit costs about $75,000, so hard to come by in the developing world. Or you can do a liver biopsy, which is the gold standard. But interestingly, where I work, we rarely do a liver biopsy on someone with hepatitis B. We, it's really not part of our management algorithm. Now, the treatment of chronic hepatitis B, the ideal therapy would cure the infection. We don't have that therapy. Current therapies, when successful, prevent progression of hepatitis B to cirrhosis or cancer. Cure, the loss of hepatitis B surface antigen in the blood, is unlikely with the treatments that we have. 
The current treatments have long duration side effects and substantial cost, but they do decrease hepatitis B virus-related mortality. Now, the first main treatment is called interferon and ribavirin. And this treatment works by immune stimulation. Interferon is a naturally occurring uh, cytokine, and it's going to stimulate immune response. And uh, this is a, a treatment given as injection. It requires typically 12 months or 48 weeks of therapy for hepatitis B. The goal is to get the patient into the inactive carrier phase. So the goal is to take the patient from the immune clearance phase into this inactive carrier phase with 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 uh, interferon ribavirin. We give this treatment to people who have a very high ALT. The immune system is already active and fighting the disease, and the liver is very inflamed, and maybe we can just push it right into inactive carrier state with a boost from interferon. We avoid giving it to people with cirrhosis because it can cause a flare of liver disease giving this treatment. Uh, uh, This uh, treatment causes side effects in almost everyone. And if the patient can't tolerate the side effects, then we don't give it. And side effects are anemia, chronic flu-like symptoms, and depression. Head the list. Um, This is a very expensive therapy in the developed world. And the efficacy after all that treatment is less than 50% of actually succeeding. The succeeding is getting a patient into the inactive carrier phase. Yes. Question was, how helpful is portal vein size in diagnosing cirrhosis? Uh, I believe it's helpful, but in and of itself, it's not sufficiently sensitive or specific. And you can look at hepatopetal flow. So if the flow is in the wrong direction in the portal vein, that's very useful because that suggests there's serious portal hypertension presence. So if you have Doppler on your unit and you can actually see the flows in the wrong direction, usually by then you kind of know they have cirrhosis for other reasons. But, but um, it's not sufficiently sensitive. So uh, when we get to the resource slide, you'll see uh, the, one of the resources I'm going to point you to is the WHO came out this year with a fantastic global guideline on hepatitis B. They recommend the APRI for assessing for cirrhosis. They do not recommend portal vein size. So... Was there a question? Another question. Okay, so interferon ribavirin. The other major category of treatment for hepatitis B are oral agents that are either nucleoside or nucleotide uh, uh, drugs. They, they, are, they are mimics of the nucleosides and nucleotides that uh, are used to build, the hepatitis B virus uses to build its own DNA. And so these agents halt viral replication by uh, stopping DNA production, hepatitis B virus DNA production. Uh, And there's a whole uh, family of these. I've listed some of them there, lamivudine, adefavir, atecavir, tenofovir. There's others. And these are uh, the most widely used drugs for hepatitis B around the world. They're the preferred treatment for patients with cirrhosis because they're not going to cause a flare of hepatitis. They're effective in both the immune clearance and the reactivation phases. They're generally well tolerated. The problem with them is many patients will be on therapy indefinitely because it just stops replication of the virus. It doesn't cure the patient. Uh, So we we say we like to treat until there's hepatitis B, E-antigen seroconversion to E-antibody, or until 
which is fairly unlikely, the patient becomes B surface antigen negative. So many patients are on therapy conceivably for the rest of their life. And viral resistance is an issue with these drugs. So these drugs we would use either in the immune clearance phase to stop viral replication, drop the DNA level, and stop the inflammation, or in this phase where they're also helpful, the reactivation phase. If we treat in this phase, we treat until the patient becomes, loses E antigen and develops E antibody, which could take many years. If we treat in this phase, we just treat for the rest of the person's life, essentially. So that's the use of oral agents, nucleoside and nucleotide drugs. Now, the common oral agents, here's some information about them. Cost per month in the United States as of 2014, you can see these are quite expensive drugs. The rate of E antigen seroconversion, about one in five, will cross into the immune uh, clearance phase and can stop the drug. Loss of hepatitis B virus DNA, they're pretty effective at suppressing production of of DNA uh, while they're being given. Resistance is very common with lamivudine. So in the developing world, lamivudine is available quite cheaply. It's available for pennies a pill. Unfortunately, resistance emerges in in most patients after a few years, so not the best choice. Um, And tecavir, resistance is very unlikely. And so far, no reported resistance of hepatitis B virus to tenofovir. So this is a great choice. Durability of response relates to resistance and um, um, is better uh, in general over time with drugs uh, in which resistance doesn't emerge. Now, one of the big pharmacy stories in this area is the emergence of low-cost tenofovir in the developing world. And people who treat hepatitis in the developing world for years have been frustrated they couldn't treat anybody except the the small subset of their patients who could afford these expensive drugs. But the WHO has a major uh, initiative, global initiative now, to get cost-effective drugs for hepatitis B. And just yesterday, I got an email from a friend in Lagos, Nigeria, who said that she's getting tenofovir for $14 a month for her patients in, in Nigeria. And, and the WHO has gotten from Gilead, the company that makes tenofovir, a promise that tenofovir will be available in developing countries for less than $20 a month per patient. Now, some places that's still too much. But other places, it opens up this treatment to a large number of people who otherwise could not afford it. So, this is, uh, so tenofovir becomes, in many settings and for many patients, perhaps a, a viable treatment and a reason to screen people and to think about treating people with this infection before they come like that farmer with an incurable cancer. And tecavir, same story. Here's an article from uh, just a few months ago saying large-scale production of generic and tecavir could cut the cost of first-line hepatitis B virus therapy to just U.S. dollars 36 per patient per year. That's $3 a month. So this is coming, and it's very exciting for those of us who care about hepatitis. Now I'm going to leave hepatitis B at this point, unless you have other questions about it, and go on to hepatitis delta and hepatitis C. Yes? Do you just treat with one drug? So the short answer is yes. And the preferred drug, according to the WHO now, is tenofovir because resistance is so unlikely. However, you need to have, be a place where you have a steady supply. It's like, kind of like HIV treatment. The nightmare is to have someone go on it and off it, on it and off it. On it. So, so you want a steady supply. You want to counsel the person. Most people in a developing world setting, 
They come, they have a blood test, their B surface antigen positive, maybe they're screened for employment or something else. You don't start them on treatment right away. You know, you, you want to follow for six months, see if they'll still be B surface antigen positive six months from now. In the meantime, you're going to do the stuff about household contacts and vaccinating their children and all these other things. You're going to counsel them about what the disease is and the fact that if they start treatment, it may be years that they're going to be on the treatment, and it may prevent them from dying from liver disease, but it's a serious commitment to take treatment. So that's sort of the flavor of of how – but yes, it's one drug. It's one drug. And Tecavir, the other drug that the WHO says now should be used in the developing world preferentially. They're encouraging people not to use lamivudine, which is cheap, but resistance occurs very commonly to that drug. And you can't detect resistance so well in the developing world because you're not monitoring the hepatitis B virus DNA level in the blood. Too expensive an assay or not available in many places. Okay, so... Hepatitis delta, which we Americans tend to write hepatitis D. This is a small RNA virus that requires encapsulation by the hepatitis B surface antigen to cause infection. So this is an incomplete virus that can only infect someone who's already got hepatitis B. And it may occur simultaneously with hepatitis B co-infection or in a patient already infected, superinfection. And we consider this in a newly diagnosed hepatitis B virus patient or an acute hepatitis occurring in someone who we know has chronic hepatitis B. And uh, this is a bad disease. As someone with hepatitis B who gets Delta virus also, their, the, the progression of their cirro- uh, inflammation cirrhosis picks up and uh, their, their mortality increases. Uh, diagnosed with a serology anti-hepatitis D virus antibody, or you can measure the RNA directly, Treatment, questionable whether there's really any treatment for hepatitis D virus. There's some evidence maybe interferon, pegylated interferon, may have some effect. Hepatitis C is also an RNA virus, and uh, um, it's transmitted also by blood and body fluids, and it often also results in chronic infection. And here's the map for chronic hepatitis C. And um, um, here... The high prevalence areas above 3% are in dark green. Interestingly, it's a little different than B. You'll notice that the high prevalence areas for C are mainly uh, north and central sub-Saharan Africa. And there's not so much C in Asia in the areas where there's a lot of B. The natural history of hepatitis C is more straightforward than that of hepatitis B. People who get exposed to acute hepatitis C... Uh, at least as adults, 60 to 85% will go on to chronic infection. I believe the number is even higher in children. Anywhere from 15 to 40% will resolve, but most people will get a chronic infection. About a third of them, there's no evidence of hepatitis. They have a normal transaminase in the blood, and those people usually do pretty well. But about 70% get a chronic inflammation of the liver related to the hepatitis C infection with uh, transaminases, AST, ALT, going up and down, chronic hepatitis. Many of them will go on to cirrhosis, and it's the ones with cirrhosis who go on to get hepatocellular carcinoma or die from decompensated cirrhosis. And this process takes decades to unfold. And the person may or may not have symptoms when they're exposed way back here, 
but otherwise they often won't have any symptoms till they come with decompensated cirrhosis or cancer, way, way out here at the end of the infection. Uh, and I'm going to skip that slide. So in patients with fibrosis of the liver, cure of hepatitis C is associated with decreased mortality. And this shows that treating hepatitis C actually improves outcomes. Ten-year cumulative incidence rate here from 0% to 35%. Here's uh, all-cause mortality in a group of people who either cleared their hepatitis C virus in yellow or did not clear it in pink. You can see mortality was three times as high in those who didn't clear their infection as those who did. And this is the broken down by liver cancer or liver failure. It's people who get cured of this infection, their chance of dying from it goes down dramatically. And this shows briefly the evolution of hepatitis C virus therapy over the last 25 years. And we've gone from our treatment with interferon for six months, getting a sustained response in 10% of the people we treated, to now this year, really in the last year and a half, we can cure 95% of hepatitis C. Cure, actually. Now, I told you hepatitis B, we cannot cure hepatitis B. Hepatitis C is the first chronic viral infection that can be cured reliably. Sam Palpan can correct me if he thinks I'm wrong. But it's a remarkable thing. We now have a number of drugs that can cure this chronic viral infection. And along the way, we gave interferon and interferon with ribavirin, and these percentages were going up, and we figured out more clever ways to give the interferon, and then we started adding these oral agents, and now we just give these oral agents. It's quite dramatic. And in fact, in the developed world, the fear of the, of the drug companies is that within 10 years, there's going to be nobody with hepatitis C to treat, or very few. So, and they won't have, be able to sell drug anymore. And that's why they charge so much for the drug, I think. So a typical course of therapy, this shows some of the drugs, minimal side effects, typically costs about $50,000 to take a course of oral treatment for hepatitis C now. And I'm not going to go into all of this because it keeps changing a bit, but this is all the combinations of oral agents. But these are the cure rates over on the right. That's all I want you to look at. Uh, and which drug you give depends on which genotype of hepatitis C. I'm not going to spend time on this, but just to show you, the cure rates are impressive. And if you want details about what drug to use when, this will be in the slides. Okay, in the last two minutes, I want to talk about screening for hepatocellular carcinoma. This is um, something we advocate in anyone with chronic hepatitis B, especially. And how do you do that? You measure a serum alpha fetoprotein. Again, it's a pretty simple laboratory test done from a kit. And you do a liver ultrasound to look for focal lesions in the liver. And we advocate doing both those things every six months. In someone who has a new lesion in their liver on ultrasound or a rising alpha fetoprotein, we do what's called a triple phase CT scan with arterial and venous contrast phases to, uh, and to look for hepatocellular carcinoma. Most hepatocellular carcinomas now do not require biopsy for diagnosis. Their appearance is so characteristic on imaging studies and the, on the alpha fetoprotein that most patients are diagnosed and treated without a biopsy which is another remarkable thing in this area. Treatment is, if it's a small tumor detected by screening, it may well be operable. And many patients will be operated and have a partial hepatectomy. 
Another treatment that's used with success is percutaneous ethanol injection to ablate the tumor. And this is also a very helpful treatment. So some people say, why bother screening? Because there's nothing we can do. And that's fair. If there's nothing you can do, I suppose there's no reason to screen. But often there is something actually you can do. And percutaneous ethanol ablation uh, is an important treatment in the, in the developing world setting. And I'm going to stop there. Here are some resources, the WHO guideline and the World Gastroenterology Organization practice guideline and the hepatitis C. Questions? Yes, ma'am. Cost-wise for an alpha fetoprotein, how low we can go? I wish I knew the answer. I'm woefully ignorant on that. Um, Dennis, do you know what it costs to do an alpha fetoprotein at your hospital in Cameroon? 10 to 12 U.S. dollars. Pretty expensive test, in other words. 6,000 CFA. So that's an expensive test. And is, that a, is, it a, is it a kit? It's an ELISA sort of thing? or? Oh, it runs on your, so he's doing it on a Roche machine. So maybe you would get it cheaper in a different way. I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe someone else here has insight. Yes? Distribution of hepatitis D. It's a great question. I don't have the slide. My, my memory on this is that it is especially common in the Middle East and actually in portions of West Africa. So, um, but that's a spotty recollection, and I don't remember the Asian da- da- data as well because I spend more time in Africa. But, um, but it's a great question. This, uh, I'm sorry I don't have the full answer. In general, it's much lower than the prevalence of B because it really only exists in a subset of hepatitis B virus patients. But other questions? Rachel, what does that say? Oh, we have 10 minutes? Oh, I thought we were done. Okay, perfect. C, I do, but not. he was asking about D or Delta. Yeah, thank you. Sam, this is Dr. Sam Palpon, who's an infectious disease doctor, so he should really be giving this talk. So, Sam, speak up. Yeah, that's a great question. So you're asking me about, uh, let's go back to that map. Here it is. So, so um, they just say not endemic on this slide. Now, this is from the CDC. So uh, they tend to be pretty serious about what they put on a map. But it's a great question, and I don't know the answer, where they got this data from at the CDC and how they know it's not endemic in something like Congo. <laughs> so... You're thinking everything, every disease is endemic in Congo, Sam. But, uh, but um, it's a good question. I don't know. Maybe it's just not explored enough, and maybe we should trust most of the areas that are highlighted. What do you think? They actually say not endemic, but I don't know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but the time you might want to test for it or call someone like Sam or call someone from the CDC is if you're seeing an epidemic of hepatitis and you're seeing pregnant women dying from hepatitis, this is, you know, you've got to think hepatitis E in that case. Comments, questions?
Sir. Wow, great question. Is there financial assistance for hepatitis C virus infection in Ghana or, for that matter, anywhere else in the developing world? The companies that make these new, very effective, and very expensive drugs are beginning to roll out patient assistance programs. And that you're starting to see that in North America. I am not aware of a program for the developing world yet. And unfortunately, you know, the story in hepatitis B is it's taken... 15 years to see it roll out in the developing world. And I wish I had more information about that. Unfortunately, I don't know of any such program now. Although for B, there clearly is such a program. It is interesting that the companies that make interferon and ribavirin have suddenly dropped the price dramatically. And because those were, interferon was until two years ago, mainstay treatment for hepatitis C. And so, for instance, in Cameroon, Dennis and I were talking to um, the Minister of Health, I want to say it was, in Cameroon uh, in January, and some hepatologists there, and they say, oh, the, the, we've got a call from Paris. The company that sells interferon is willing to sell the entire course of treatment for 800 U.S. dollars now. Well, it's because their treatment isn't the best treatment anymore, and they're looking for a place to sell their drugs. So it may be that interferon is becoming very inexpensive, relatively speaking, in Ghana. But not that I know of these new drugs yet. I may be wrong. I think the World Health Organization, I know they've been in negotiations with the drug companies making these hepatitis B drugs. I believe they got a commitment to allow a company in India to start making these things. Sam, stand up and say this so everyone can hear it. So Indian versions, cheap versions of the new hepatitis C drugs. Thank you for commenting on that. So stay tuned, you're saying, and see. Whereas the hepatitis B thing is already a reality in many. So I just told you about Lagos, you know, and in Ghana there should be some similar sort of possibility. And it's a question of finding out who's marketing tenofovir and what's their price and, and are they meeting the WHO Gilead level of $20 a month or less. But, uh, yeah. So the question was, ethically, if you can't get your hands on a good drug, with you treat with whatever is available? So fascinating. We've been talking about this in Cameroon. Um, if all you have is lamivudine, should you treat someone with hepatitis, chronic hepatitis B with lamivudine? Well, there's some caveats. If they're in the immune clearance phase, yes, because that's where treatment's appropriate. Not if they're a teenager with a normal ALT. There's no point of giving any of these drugs. But if they're in the right phase, they have an indication for the treatment. If you give them lamivudine, let's say in two and a half years they develop resistance and it's, the drug's doing nothing for them, you could say, well, at least I've suppressed the infection for two and a half years. And we have some evidence that even a short-term suppression of the infection for a period of a few years can decrease the risk of cancer. It doesn't eliminate it, but it decreases it. So, yes, you could make that case. 
The WHO argues against that. They say if you give them lamivudine and they get resistant to that, then it, that increases the chance they'll get resistance to entecavir or some of the other drugs. So better just to start with a better drug, the WHO says. And, you know, that's what there's, there's a mindset of it's not good enough for me, but it's good enough for them, you know. And, and you know, many of us, to our shame, to our, to, you know, our discredit, may have thought that way at one time. But the WHO, I mean, and more and more people are saying, no, you know, preferential option for the poor. Why shouldn't they have the best drug? And this move to get tenofovir and entecavir available at low cost reflects that. So it's a complex question, and I don't have a final answer for you. I'd be interested to hear comments from others of you who work in other places. Maybe, Dennis, you want to comment on this. The ethics of giving lamivudine. There you go. Yeah, but just yesterday, this lady in Lagos said her supplier will get tenofovir, she thinks, even to Cameroon for $14 a month. But we can have that conversation offline. Yes? Thank you. So question about hepatitis B virus immunization. So the program, which was shown to work in Asia, 15 years ago now, was to take newborns of mothers who were B surface antigen carriers, start vaccination at the time of birth. It's a three-dose vaccination, as you know, but to give the first dose at birth and also to give them an injection of hepatitis B immune globulin. And that was shown to be highly effective at preventing transmission and breaking this generational cycle of transmission of this virus. It was subsequently shown in a, in a big study in Thailand that if you couldn't get the immune globulin, which is expensive and has to be frozen and so forth, you could just do the vaccination and do almost as well. And so that for many years now has been the standard. Now, about 10 to 15 years ago, the WHO in Africa rolled out the same program. But the African health official said it's impractical to vaccinate at the time of birth in our setting. Birth is happening in the village. There's no healthcare worker there. If there is a healthcare worker, there's no cold chain to get vaccine to them. And so we're going to vaccine at six weeks, start the vaccination, and then give the three injections. And there is no good published long-term data on the efficacy of that. The best we have is population-based studies from South Africa and uh, some other countries in Sub-Saharan Africa to show there's been no change in the rate of B-service antigen carriage in young people in those countries since that policy was introduced. So there's increasing skepticism that the strategy employed in Africa in at least 10 countries, is that five minutes you're showing me? Thank you. Uh, there's increasing skepticism that that um, strategy of starting at six weeks was really of any value. Now, people have talked about, should we give a pregnant woman who's about to deliver, should we put her on tenofovir for a few days and then let her deliver and maybe her child won't get infected? There's extreme reluctance to do that because of concern about inducing resistance in her to a drug that might be very useful to her later in life. And many of these young women delivering are in that immune tolerance phase where they have very high circulating viral levels. So if anyone's going to get resistance, it's someone who's got a ton of virus around and is exposed to a drug for a brief time. So people have been very reluctant to go there for hepatitis B. So I would say the best thing would be to vaccinate at birth in a developing world setting. And if you have B immune globulin available to give it, most patients 
places don't, but that's probably okay for the majority of infants. Sorry, question. I was just about the mother to infant transmission. Is it just the, all the factors put together, the delivery, the breastfeeding, the close contact? Is it one more than the other that's thought to be part of that vertical transmission? It's, it's not thought to so much be the breast. It's thought to occur during the process of birth, and we know that C-section, you don't get vertical transmission if there's a cesarean section. So it's something to do with the process of coming through the birth canal. And you could well imagine that there's exposure to blood and body fluids of the infant during that process. And there's fascinating recent evidence that um, there's an, uh, ent- more than you want to know, that there's an enterohepatic circulation of hepatitis B in the bile, and that hepatitis B is reabsorbed through transferrin receptors on ileal enterocytes in the ileum. So it may even be that the child in birth is ingesting maternal fluids that have B in it and absorbing it through the ileum. Um, it's, it's unclear exactly what the, the, the pathway is. Yeah. Yeah. So, great. so the question is, uh, with B, if you've got resistance to lamivudine, you're more likely to get resistance to entecavir especially. And so the WHO says don't even use lamivudine. Um, is that the same with hepatitis C, you're asking? And the answer is yes to some extent. So if you're a non-responder to prior therapy, there are actually different combinations of these oral drugs recommended than if you are treatment naive. And also it's based on the genotype of the hepatitis C virus. And so in this complex figure I didn't talk about, but is in my slide set that you'll have access to, it unfolds some of that. What drug you would use, depending on whether there's cirrhosis or not, and whether they've had prior treatment that failed or not. So yes, you, you do use a somewhat different combination, but still your chance of cure is extremely high. Am I answering your question? Good. Other questions, comments? All right. Well, thank you very much for coming. It's fantastic to have seen you all here.